Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's show. My name is Ryan Polly. You know, during my work with Maven, one of the things that I do is I'm a field guide for the immersive experiences. And one of those trips that we take is that we go to Utah, where we have to learn Christian theology and we learn Mormon beliefs. And then we go and we share the good news with Mormons. So we talk to Mormons at Temple Square in Salt Lake City. We also go down to BYU and talk with the Mormon students there at Brigham Young University. And one thing I have found in the training of students in doing this is studying the differences between Mormonism and Christianity not only helps you be better prepared to talk to the Mormons in your life, to talk to them when they show up to your door, if they are doing that anymore, or however that's going to work, but also it gives you a deeper understanding of Christian theology, because in order to know how their views are different from Christianity, you truly have to have a better understanding of the Christian views. And so hopefully, as you join me in this show today, where we look at the differences between Mormonism and Christianity, it's not just to learn something about a different religion, but it truly is to grow deeper in our understanding and knowledge of the doctrines of Christianity and what it is that we believe. So to help us think deeper about the Christianity and Mormonism this morning, I'm bringing on uh, Bill McKeever. He is an expert in Mormonism and giving you, again, the opportunity to interact with experts and learn from them. Uh, Bill McKeever founded Mormonism Research Ministry in 1979. His books include, in their own words, a collection of Mormon questions, answering Mormon questions, ready responses for inquiring Latter-day Saints. And as you saw here, Mormonism 101, examining the religion of Latter-day Saints. Bill is the editor of Mormonism Researched, a bi-monthly publication distributed th free through his ministry, Mormonism Research Ministry, as well as he's the host of a daily radio program, Viewpoint on Mormonism. So, Bill, uh, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Glad to be with you, Ryan. Yeah, it, absolutely. As I was talking with you just a little bit before the show, it's good to see you again. I saw you on my last trip to Utah with Maven about two years ago, and I saw that you recently uh, did some training there with them. And so uh, why don't you kind of, uh, I guess, to start, tell the listeners, the viewers a little bit about yourself. You live in Salt Lake City. You've been involved in research and evangelism to Mormons since 1979. How did you get into this? Why is this something that you are passionate about? Well, the way it really began is I had a lot of Mormon acquaintances, a lot of friends in high school before I was even a Christian. And they were good friends of mine, good people, as, as Latter-day Saints are good people. They try very hard to be good citizens and yeah. good people and, and uh, certainly have no problem there. Uh, they never really tried to convert me during those early years before I became a Christian, which is probably a good thing because not believing much of anything, I guess I could have been very vulnerable to their message. But it wasn't until after I became a Christian in the mid-1970s and I started talking to some of my LDS acquaintances that I had at that time. And now as a Christian, I'm asking, of course, questions about what they believe, wanting to know where they are coming from and why they believe what they believe. And the more questions I was asking them, the, the more concerned, naturally, I became because as I was learning what the Bible had to teach and listening to what my LDS friends were saying, it became readily apparent that what they were believing is, was certainly not what I was learning to believe. And it was really out of those genuine friendships that I had with a lot of Mormons at that time that compelled me to start digging into this. And one thing that really, uh, I guess you could say, changed the course of where I was going is I was looking for a book that was written by a man by the name of Arthur Budvarsson. Now, that's not 
a name that probably most people are even familiar with nowadays, but Art and Edna Bedvarsson had started a ministry to the Mormon people back in the 1950s. Okay. Oh, wow. And uh, they were they were up in age as it was when I f first met them. But I was looking for a book that Art wrote about the Book of Mormon. And I went to our local Christian bookstore and I asked the owner, who I happened to know, her name was Katie. I asked Katie, do you have this book? Well, she pulls out this big, huge book. This is before computers, okay? <laughs> and, and I guess it had every name of every book printed since the dawn of time. I don't know, but it was a huge book. And she looks up the title and she can't find it. And she said, well, you know, art happens to live in this city, which was La Mesa, California. I was living in Southern California at the time. Why don't you just try to contact him? So I looked up in the phone book. I know I'm really dating myself here, but I looked up <laughs> in the phone book, A. Budvarsson, uh, called the number and Guy answers. I says, is this the Art Varson that wrote the book on the Book of Mormon? He said, yes. And we got together and it started a, a lifelong friendship with Art. And this was at the very beginning of my interest in Mormonism. But Art and Edna both were huge influences in my life and helped me immensely because I don't come from a Mormon background. And sometimes that helps in talking with Latter-day Saints. Sometimes that hurts. It doesn't really matter either way. It depends on the Mormon you're talking to, whether that's going to help or hurt. But art really helped me a lot in trying to think like Mormons think, which, of course, is something I did, could not know from experience. But yeah. he helped me in that because they were both ex-Mormons. In fact, uh, Edna, his wife, was born in Manti, of all places. She was born in Manti, and the irony is that we started going to Manti yeah. every year for decades. Uh, that's the town where she was born. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a big help. And I started studying this, and people who knew that I was studying this started calling me up when they were having Mormon missionaries come over to their house. They would have me come up to do... I guess you can look back and say the, the usual setup. I, I don't do that anymore. But back in the early days, I was wanting to talk to Mormons just as much as everybody else wanted to talk to Mormons. So I didn't mind being there. But it gave me an opportunity to ask questions, share my faith, see what questions worked better than other questions, and also just to find out what individual Latter-day Saints believe as opposed to what the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints hmm. wants them to believe. Yeah. That was a big thing I learned very early on. There's a lot of folk Mormonism out there and a lot of Latter-day Saints believe things that the church really doesn't teach. Hmm. They just assume a lot of things and because there's a lot of gaps you might say in Mormon theology, some Mormons try to fill those gaps and they inject personal beliefs that aren't really a part of the church. My desire was to learn more of what the church wanted their people to believe. And that's why when we started MRM uh, in, in 1979, when I say we, it was really, it was really me, my wife working alongside me, uh, we, I wanted to deal with what I considered to be the official publications, and I know official doesn't even have an official definition in Mormonism, really, uh, 
that's kind of a big joke, you know, what is official in Mormonism? Well, there are some things that we can go to that a Mormon should recognize. And so we have spent a lot of years studying what Mormons are supposed to believe from their manuals, from conference messages, from their written scripture, uh, from authoritative uh, sources. And we found that to be the, more, the most effective in talking with Latter-day Saints. Hmm. I, I always want to ask them questions. I want to ask them what they believe. That gives me a foundation of where I'm going to direct my questions. You kind of learn this with experience, and it's not really that difficult, but you don't have to be an expert on Mormonism to talk with a Latter-day Saint. You just need to know what kind of questions you might want to start with and then pay close attention to what they're saying. Because if you do, that will probably direct you into the next question that you want to ask. But letting the Mormon explain themselves, I, I find to be the best way to approach this. I, I don't accuse them of believing anything, even though I know from experience what they're supposed to believe. I let them explain their story. Yeah. If they contradict what a Mormon leader has taught, I'll ask them that. I'll say, well, I, I notice you believe this. Are you aware, though, that this leader, blank, taught this? What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. And let them explain why they disagree. They may not even know they do disagree. And I <laughs> yeah. find that to be very telling, too. They'll sometimes say, oh, no, we don't believe that. And I'll give them a quote from a leader. And they'll sometimes either they'll say, well, I'll have to look into that a little bit more, or they'll doubt, outright deny it, or they'll go, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, maybe we do believe that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I've had all sorts of responses doing it this way. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point. I I, I did that once. Uh, some Mormons that were coming over to my house, and and they made a statement. I went, well, hold on, Joseph Smith has a publication himself where he wrote different, and they went, mm, I don't know about that. And I said, and they had all their manuals and everything on their on their iPad, and they looked it up, and they found it in the page number, and they went, hmm. Well, Joseph Smith was just a human, you know, and I went are you saying that Joseph Smith made a mistake? And they're like, well, no, we're not saying that. And it's like, so then where do you stand? And and they, they kind of went, ah, we don't know. And that was the last time they came back over the house. But I think uh, you, this is a really good point you bring up, is understanding the difference between what the, the church wants them to believe and what they believe. I find that with my students, as I teach world religions, I will teach them what a religion believes. And they talk to someone who holds to that religion and things don't line up. And then the students sometimes go, oh, well, Mr. Polly was wrong in what he taught us. Uh, or they go, well, this person knows nothing. Uh, I, I think there's a fine balance. So I, I think you kind of spoke into that a little bit of, of how we understand uh, why it's important both to not only know the church, what they believe, but also recognize not all Mormons are going to hold to that. They're going to believe things that the church doesn't teach, and they're going to not believe things the church does teach. So how do you, I guess you kind of gave one example, but the importance of knowing both of those sides in conversation. Yeah, I think it is important because if a Mormon, let's say, wants to convert me to their faith, I will sometimes ask them if they do give a belief that is not considered Mormon orthodoxy, say, well, if I was to become a member, would I be compelled to believe what you believe or would I be more compelled to believe what the people in authority believe? Mm -hmm. Because... You see, doctrinal teaching in Mormonism isn't given over to the lay member in the church. They have a hierarchy of authority in the church. They have the first presidency at the very top, which is the prophet, seer, and revelator, which is currently Russell M. Nelson. This, mm -hmm. He's the 17th president. He's in his mid-90s. 
uh, and then he has two counselors. These these three guys are really the show. They are the ones who are given authority to speak on doctrinal issues, and nobody speaks above the prophet. So if the prophet says something, it's not up to the lay member to contradict them. Mm -hmm. They really have no authority to do that. Now, I've had many Mormons who disagree, and that's fine, but I want to make sure that the Latter-day Saint knows that I understand how it works in Mormonism, and though you may have a difference of opinion, that is not an authoritative opinion. And sometimes when I get a Mormon who's really insistent, I sometimes I, I might just notch it up a little bit and ask, well, how many times have you spoken in general conference? <laughs> Which they have twice a year. Mm -hmm. And of course, it will be zero. And so a person who has never spoken in general conference has the authority to correct the prophet who speaks at every general conference or an apostle that speaks at general conference. Of course they don't. And I think we sometimes can be confused by what our LDS neighbor tells us, not knowing that what they may be saying isn't really considered true Mormonism to begin with. Hmm. That's why it's important that when we are talking with them to sometimes say to them very politely, and I, I don't advocate being rude or obnoxious or anything like that, but politely ask him, well, where did you get this? Can, can I see this reference that you have that supports what you're telling me? I'd be curious to read it myself. Can you supply me with that? Um, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't, uh, but it, sometimes it doesn't even matter to them. Hmm. Uh, so it's all the individual that you're talking to. Yeah, and I think you just brought up such an important point uh, for those who don't uh, kind of know, again, that the structure of the Mormon church is is that kind of position, the different positions of authority and how that is different than Christians, where we see our pastor and we may respect our pastor, but our pastor has to be speaking things that are true of the word of God. Uh, how yeah. is that different in Mormonism where the prophet can, can stand up at general conference? Can they give new information that is not included in the doctrines and covenants in Book of Mormon? Or, or how does that work as far as like new information and, and and the difference there between Mormonism and Christianity. They can. They don't do it often, but they certainly can. I'll give you one example where I think the leadership did diverge from their written scripture, and that is in giving those of African heritage the priesthood in 1978. David O. McKay, who was a Mormon president, said that there is a verse in the book of Abraham that he felt was the proof text, if you will, that supports this, this ban on allowing uh, blacks to hold the priesthood. But yet, in 1978, the church ignored that verse out of the book of Abraham and opened the priesthood up to all worthy male members. Uh, that's one case where they ignored their scripture, at least a scripture that was given by David O. McKay. I think it was Abraham chapter one. I, don't, I can't remember offhand what he, what he was citing. But that was a doctrine of the church for much of its early history. And uh, now, of course, that's all been reversed. And if you ask a Latter-day Saint, well, why were blacks banned from holding the priesthood in the first place? Most of the ones that I come across nowadays will say, well, we don't know. Hmm. Well, Maybe they don't know, but the leadership certainly knew before 1978 because there's plenty that is written on this. Yeah. All you have to do is go back and see what they were saying about this uh, before 1978. So for a Mormon to say, well, we don't know, it is 
is misleading, that's for sure. I wouldn't accuse the Mormon of lying. They just may not know what their leaders have said on that subject before 1978. There, there is a lot of ignorance in the Mormon church, as there's a lot of ignorance within the Christian community. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves here. You know, not everybody knows everything. I certainly don't know everything, and I'm willing to admit I could be even wrong in some areas and have sometimes done that, you know, okay? Uh, I think we should all be students of life and learning constantly, and let's not get so proud that we can't admit maybe we were going in the wrong direction here. Mormons sometimes can be pretty stubborn about this, and it's funny how when you do bring up something to a Latter-day Saint that kind of blindsides them, have you ever noticed, Ryan, that many times they'll outright deny it, say, oh, you're wrong, that's not true, and they'll be very adamant that what you brought up could not possibly be true. And I've had this happen to me where I've challenged them to go back and look it up, and they've come back to write me and say, well, I looked it up, and yeah, you were right, and I guess we do believe that. And my response to that is, well, wait a minute. When I brought it up the first time, you thought I was lying, and you knew that couldn't be true, and now you have no problem with it? Hmm. Did you have a values change in, in between our last conversation? Because it really bothered you before, and it doesn't seem to bother you now. Explain yeah. that to me. I'd like to. I'd like to understand your thinking on that. Yeah. So the point you bring up here, uh, I, I think, causes a lot of people to to think of Mormonism as being racist, or at least was racist, as blacks couldn't be in the priesthood. Uh, and the question did come in on Instagram: of uh, Is it racist because this person heard that a third of the fallen angels? So you know, as we even see in Scripture, a third of the angels are fell. Uh, and it says that those are the people, the, the, the third of the angels that fell became black people. This is what they heard. And that's why uh, okay. they've heard that Mormonism is racist. So is there any truth to this? Well, let me clarify that a little bit. The one third part and the falling is true, but the one third that fell became the demons. Lucifer, according to Mormonism, led a rebellion against his father, Elohim, and his brother, Jehovah, or Jesus, in the pre-existence. And he led a rebellion against them, and that one-third of God's spirit children, because Mormonism teaches that we all existed as spirit children in the pre-existence before we took on this mortality. So you have one-third of God's spirit children were cast out of heaven for rebelling against Heavenly Father. They become the demons. Lucifer becomes the devil. So that's how they came about. Mm -hmm. There was one third of God's spirit children who were not as valiant in this war in heaven as they could have been. They were, because they were not as valiant as they could have been, they were going to be punished. And this is the punishment. They would be given mortality, unlike the one third who became the demons, who would never get mortality, have no chance of salvation. They would be given mortality, but as a punishment, they would be marked with a black skin. And this black skin, ultimately, you could say, was to identify those individuals as not doing what they could have done during the war in heaven. Hmm. Another part of the punishment would be that they would not be allowed to hold the priesthood. The black skin would mark those who, not, who could not hold the priesthood. So really, the black skin doesn't really have a lot of meaning, you could say, until the Mormon church comes to play. Yeah. Who cared before, yeah. all right? But now it becomes important. 
the Mormon church has really laid the blame for this doctrine, and it was called a doctrine. I know Mormons now say, well, it was just a policy. Policies can be changed. Doctrine can't. <laughs> they called it a doctrine before 1978. I can prove that. But they, would, they were arguing that this was the reason. The black skin marks them so they cannot hold the priesthood because of what was done in, in, in the premortal existence. And what's really sad about all this is that the individual who had the black skin and was a member of the LDS Church couldn't even remember what they did. Yeah, They have no memory of what life was like in the pre-existence, as do any of us. None of us have any memory of what happened in the pre-existence, because according to Mormonism, all our memory was wiped away when we came into mortality. So you could say yes that the early leaders certainly demonstrated the racism of the culture at that time. There's no doubt about that. The church has basically admitted that in a gospel, uh, gospel topics essay uh, a few years back. Uh, but the question then becomes, well, why are prophets of God, as you believe these men to be, being swayed by the racist culture? you would think that they would rise above the culture yeah. and condemn the culture, but yet they were a part of the culture. And of course, now looking back, many Mormons themselves are even appalled by some of the statements that Mormon leaders have made towards those of black skin. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not trying to excuse Christians in this area either. I think if we were honest, we know that those kind of feelings can permeate in everybody's life and we all have to watch out for for ill feelings against anybody for any reason whatsoever you might say uh, I'm not trying to excuse Christianity uh, or Christians because certainly there are some comments made by professing Christians in the past that I find cringeworthy all right uh, but the fact is the Mormon Church is supposed to be led by prophets of God that puts them you would think a cut above the rest hmm. but yet they don't act like that before 1978. They fall right into that racist trap. Yeah. Now, I don't want to leave listeners with the idea that all Mormons were racist at that time. Um, this gets kind of complicated. And, and I, I know with critical race theory, it gets really weird. But, but the point is, is this is what a lot of people really were believing and felt God had ordained. They looked at this was God's plan, not that they had anything personal against black people. It's just this is the way it is. They didn't know any better. Does that make it right? No, it doesn't. But that's just the way it is. Um, so I, I'm really reluctant to accuse the average member of the church of being racist because of that doctrine, though I've I, probably would not allow the leadership to get away with that because some of the comments that they made were pretty horrible. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Uh, now, a couple things that you you brought up kind of in your answer to that. Um, the first thing you mentioned was the book of Abraham. And so I think it'd be maybe uh, a good starting place, again, for those who are a little bit more unaware, like what are the differences, again, between Christianity and Mormonism when it comes to uh, the scriptures? What, what do they have as far as scripture? That's a great question, because scripture in Mormonism can be varied. And what I mean by that is they have a written scripture. They have what they call the standard works. That includes the Bible, King James Version, the Book of Mormon, which is supposed to be a history of ancient people who lived on the American continent, 
And they have the Doctrine and Covenants, which is a collection of revelations that were allegedly given to Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon movement. Uh, there's some other revelations in there, too, but most of them are credited to Joseph Smith. And then there's a small section. It's called the Pearl of Great Price. The Pearl of Great Price has even smaller sections in it, uh, a section from the Book of Matthew, from the Joseph Smith translation. It also has the Book of Moses, and it has a, uh, Joseph Smith's history is found in the Pearl of Great Price, where he tells the story of how Moroni came to him and told him about the gold plates and such. Uh, and then it has the Book of Abraham. The Book of Abraham is very controversial. And I have found in my experience that when I talk to Latter-day Saints who have left the church, and this could be helpful to your listeners, that one of the reasons why more people, at least the ones that I have talked to, that they leave, the reason they leave, or at least start that journey out, is they find out that Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Abraham is bogus. Yeah. What happened is that in, in the mid-1830s, Joseph Smith is visited by a guy by the name of Michael Chandler who has some Egyptian mummies and there's some papyri with these Egyptian mummies. His church followers pool their money together and they end up buying this display off of Michael Chandler. And Joseph Smith commences translating this papyri that came with those mummies. And this is what becomes the book of Abraham. And Joseph Smith just copies down a lot of the characters on this papyra and gives them an interpretation that, of course, at that time, in around 1835, there weren't a lot of experts in the United States that could refute what he was saying. Mm -hmm. uh, Jean-Francois Champollion, the Frenchman, had just really broke the code through the Rosetta Stone that was known several years earlier, 1899 is when the Rosetta Stone was discovered, and Champollion was able to crack the code, you might say. And so all the experts were really over in Europe. So Smith pretty ha has pretty much a free hand to say whatever he wants. Yeah. And who's going to correct him? It's, he got away with it with the Book of Mormon. I mean, who knows Reformed Egyptian? Nobody, because it doesn't exist. Yeah. So he could say whatever he wants about the alleged characters on the gold plates that became the Book of Mormon. So he starts writing down all these crazy ideas about what he thinks is on this papyrus. Well, later on, when the experts start looking at what Joseph Smith had put down, they all agreed he didn't know what he was talking about. It's just gibberish. Uh, but yet this becomes scripture in the Mormon church. And it's, it's really odd because this is where you have, for instance, a creation account where the gods, plural, were doing all the things that God, singular, was doing in the Bible. Um, and it, it just shows the theology of Joseph Smith at that particular time, because his theology was evolving till his death in 1844. The things that he believed in 1844, it would be difficult to support some of those things from the Book of Mormon that he produces in 1830. Mm -hmm. And if you read the Book of Mormon, thinking that you're going to find a lot of unique Mormon doctrine in there, you're probably going to be disappointed. Uh, I've often said, and I use this as an illustration, that when you read the Book of Mormon, it may sound like you're reading a book more about confused Protestants rather than ancient Mormons, uh, because there is a lot of 
Protestant theology in there. And there's also a lot of anachronisms, things that you wouldn't think would bother people living at those in those time periods, like, you know, baptism of infants. Who would care about that mm -hmm. in ancient America, hundreds of years, you know, before the New Testament came around? Who, who would even care about that? Uh, or around the New Testament time period, totally disconnected, I should say, from the old world. It wouldn't make sense. Secret oaths and combinations, things having to do with masonry at the time, find their way into the Book of Mormon, though it doesn't mention masonry in particular. It certainly seems like that's what it's talking about. And that was a big issue during Joseph Smith's mm -hmm. time. So you have a lot of anachronisms. You don't have a lot of unique teachings in the Book of Mormon that reflect modern Mormon thought. Uh, so anyway, the Book of Abraham, I think now that the experts have gone through it and have basically said Joseph Smith did not know what he was talking about, this is completely made up, his explanations do not match the characters, this has caused a lot of Latter-day Saints to rethink their positions. Because if it could be shown that Joseph Smith was making it up with the Book of Abraham, What's the obvious next question? Did he make it up with the Book of Mormon? Mm -hmm. Well, once you can demonstrate to a Latter-day Saint that the Book of Mormon is not really ancient scripture, talking about real people, real places, and real events, that starts knocking the pillars out from under the Mormon belief system, because yeah. you have to have the Book of Mormon. You, you can't not reject the Book of Mormon and still accept Joseph Smith as a prophet of God. There's a type of circular reasoning with many Latter-day Saints. They know that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. Why? Well, because he produced an ancient scripture. Well, how do you know this is ancient scripture? Well, because it was translated by a modern prophet. Hmm. Now, most of us would say, that's not real good reasoning, but I've talked to Mormons who actually do believe that. So what would you say then? So uh, and I and I have quite a few things I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on as regard to the Book of Mormon uh, that we'll get to. But I've uh, heard Mormon responses to kind of that question of how do you know Joseph Smith actually translated this? And and their response is uh, he had no education. He was he was not an educated person, yet he was able to produce this work of literature. And so how could he have done this had he not been educated? Well, it doesn't mean that he didn't have an imagination, and it doesn't mean that he couldn't have been influenced by a lot of ideas of his time, and I certainly think he was. Uh, I don't like to characterize Joseph Smith as some ignorant backwoods dolt. I mean, he was known for telling amazing stories to his family. He would entertain his family by telling these stories of ancient people that lived on, on the American continent. It's not totally impossible. Now, you got to remember, though, he didn't write the Book of Mormon. He merely read, or that's at least how Mormons believe it. He, he was supposedly reading characters off of these gold plates, and uh, the scribe would be writing everything down. Well, even what I just said now has been revised, because now the Mormon church has admitted that he probably wasn't really reading anything at all off gold plates, that he had a seer stone that he would put into a hat. He would look into this hat to exclude the light. And as David Whitmer explained, David Whitmer was one of the witnesses to the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. His name is found in every edition of the Book of Mormon, that these the characters would appear on this rock 
And he would read the characters off. He would read the words off to his scribe. The scribe would read it back. And when it was read back correctly, it would go on to the next set of characters. There's not a whole lot of margin for error, if that's the way it really came about. But let's be honest. If he's reading characters off of a hat, he's not looking at the Book of Mormon. Why did he have to go through getting the plates yeah. if he didn't even really need the plates in order to give us the Book of Mormon? Yeah, and as far as I remember, because it's been two years, when I went through the um, the museum there in Salt Lake City, the, the main Mormon museum, uh, they even have in the section on the Book of Mormon, they have a picture of the seer stones. And they say these, as far right. as I remember, these are the stones that Joseph Smith used uh, to translate uh, the Book of Mormon. And so even they're admitting that and showing you pictures in their museum of these stones. I wish they would show the actual seer stone. I think that would be a great artifact to have on yeah. display. I don't know why they don't. Yeah. It's just a little little rock uh, with like a stripe through it. Yeah. Uh, it was described as a chocolate-colored egg-shaped stone. And he found it while digging a well with his brother Hiram, I believe it was in 1823, and he would use this stone, allegedly, to hire himself out to find buried treasure. Uh, but he's not looking at the plates. That's the point. And even Joseph Fielding Smith, the 10th president of the church, he denied that Joseph Smith used the seer stone to give us the Book of Mormon. But yet the modern church today has admitted that. Now, that caused a lot of people some concern because for many years, I, I remember years ago, knowing about the seer stone and talking to Latter-day Saints about it, they would say, I didn't know what I was talking about because, well, why? Pictures of the Ensign Magazine, which is a monthly periodical, would have, a, for instance, a picture of Joseph Smith looking at the gold plates like yeah. he's running his fingers across the characters as if he was reading it to a scribe. That's not the way it was done. So when you are a Latter-day Saint and you have these mental images of how things supposedly happened, because that's the image the church gave you, mm -hmm. and now you're hearing from people like myself who are deemed, unfortunately, as enemies of, of Mormons, and I'm not an enemy of, Mormon, uh, of a Mormon, I'm probably an enemy of Mormonism, that title I probably would wear proudly, but I'm certainly not against Mormons, but they would think I have this devious uh, reason to tell them lies. And yet what happens now the church comes out with a statement, gospel topics essay on the translation of the book of Mormon. They admit that Joseph Smith used a seer stone. And now how does that make the church look? Not very good, not yeah. very good, but I'll tell you what it has done, Ryan. It's given a lot of Christians, a lot of street cred, who were trying to tell Mormons this before the church admitted it. And the question then becomes, well, how come they knew about it and my church didn't tell me about it? And we have found through experience that when a Mormon learns something from a non-member that they don't think is true, and then they find it out to, that it is true, hmm. that has a much more devastating effect on the member than let's say they heard it from a gospel doctrine teacher at the local chapel. Uh, it's it's devastating t sometimes. And yeah. these gospel topics essays, I know I've, I've thrown that phrase out, they're a great resource for Christians because they can be found on the official website of the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ. Church, Church of Jesus, they changed their website recently. It's churchofjesuschrist.org, I think is what it is. Okay. 
just type in LDS.org. It'll still get you there, even though they're not supposed to use LDS. Mm. Uh, but, but anyway, these essays have not really helped people in the church to better understand their history and doctrine. It's caused many to be so confused and actually appalled by some of the things it admits. They admit that we know of Latter-day Saints who have left the church because of the right. gospel topics essays and this new transparency that the LDS church really has been compelled to show now. Yeah. Uh, they can't hide behind this anymore. The, the internet is killing them. The information is out there. People are finding this information on the internet. I mean, we've, we've been on the internet since the, the mid 1990s. That's why we have a three letter URL. You can't find those anymore. <laughs> and, uh, we've been there a long time. And we found that since the internet came around, it changed ministry entirely. But it's it's been quite effective in getting our message out. Because whereas before, mailing something to a Mormon in hard copy could get them in a lot of trouble if someone saw our address in the upper left-hand corner or whatever. Now people can look in the privacy of their own home and they don't have to worry so much about whether the bishop knows they're mm. receiving information that the church may not approve. Yeah. And, I, and I might say something about that too, because the information that we often deal with is their own information. It's their stuff. I don't like to quote opinions about Mormonism or about Mormons. I know that's not going to have a real serious effect on them. I like to quote their own material, and I try my best to make sure I'm quoting it in context. It would do me no good to continually take things out of context that a Mormon could easily find, yeah. and it ruins your credibility. It's not that we can't make a mistake like that. We're all prone to do that. But it's not something that we're trying to do just to to trick a Mormon into leaving the church. Why in the world would I want to do that? I, if I if they leave, I want them to leave knowing that what they're now believing is more true than what they believed. Yeah, I think that's so good. Um, I, I <clears throat> kind of have a practical question uh, on that. And then I want to kind of get back into the Book of Mormon a little bit. And then there's some listener questions. But uh, how would you in conversations go about exposing these because you talked about like the, these these false ideas, the things that Mormons don't know uh, are true, and if you expose these things as a non-Mormon uh, and then help them realize, and then they see that it is true, it's really devastating for them. Like we obviously don't want to be just going around being like, "Well, did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know that?" You know, I, that's not very uh, a kind way of doing it. So, how would you practically, in conversations, go about exposing? Some of these kind of uh, more serious things, like the Book of Abraham, or or what uh, the the church is teaching to a Mormon. Well, let me give you an example of how I would do it at the Mormon Miracle Pageant. Uh, you you've been there and you've seen me. I'm out there with my little red wagon and my replica gold plates, and I'm mainly challenging Mormons to lift my replica gold plates. And I have a reason for this. Even though my plates are made of sheet metal. I can't afford gold. That'd be <laughs> kind of expensive nowadays, that's for sure. But even sheet metal is pretty heavy. And when the Mormon would lift my plates that only weighed 80 pounds, they recognized, hey, these are pretty heavy. And yet I try to explain to them if my plates were gold and they were this size, because the size that I have is the size that Joseph Smith gave for the plates. I'm using his measurements. 
those plates, if they were made of gold, gold weighing 1,200 pounds per cubic foot, the plates being one-sixth of a cubic foot, obviously it means the plates would have weighed 200 pounds. Hmm. Now, Mormons have all sorts of ways of trying to get around that. I, I'm, I've heard all the arguments. I, I, I know all the arguments because I've been doing it for too long. But the point is, is if the plates did weigh 200 pounds, you would have to take my plates, double it, and add another half a stack. And when I explain that to the Latter-day Saint, they immediately immediately see there's a problem here. And so what they'll do is they'll come up with some excuses like, well, Joseph Smith was a buff farm boy. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that phrase while I was at the Mormon Miracle Pageant. But he, okay, he was a buff farm boy. I give you that. But no buff farm boy is going to lift 200 pounds, tuck him under his arm, and, and head off for home, jumping over logs and running at the top of his speed away from attackers. Mm -hmm. That just can't be duplicated. And when I explain the story to them, they start to see there's some problems here. And then they'll go and say, well, don't you believe in miracles? When they do that, I sometimes I will, I will, I will let them know what they just did. You gave me a reason. Joseph Smith was a buff farm boy. I showed you that even if he was a buff farm boy, this still couldn't be replicated. Now you've switched your argument to a miracle. Who told you it was a miracle? And then I can just wait, because if anybody told them, it was probably someone else in the local ward. No Mormon leader said that. I know of no Mormon apologists that say that. Joseph Smith didn't say that. None of his contemporaries said he needed a miracle to carry the gold plates. So why did you have to come up with that? And what I do is I remind the Mormon is this. I'm not LDS, but I'm trying as hard as I can to stick to the story as it is in your manuals and in Joseph Smith's words. And I'm noticing that you're adding to the story because it sounds like you don't believe the story as it's written any more than I do. They have to add details in order to make it work out in their head. I'm just trying to stick with the story as it is for them to read. And when a Mormon starts to see the problems with just the gold plates, that hopefully will start the domino effects. Uh, and they'll go on to, to want to maybe prove me wrong, and that just ends up, they find out more things in, in that process. But the Book of Mormon, I think the, uh, the first vision is another area that needs to be discussed because Joseph Smith claimed he was visited by God the Father and Jesus Christ in the spring of 1820 as a result of a revival that he claimed was going on in the area where he lived. And there was a great religious excitement. Multitudes were added to the church. He gives us all sorts of details about this revival. But yet, when we look at the details that he gives us, there was a revival like that. The problem is, it didn't take place in the spring of 1820. The revival Joseph Smith is describing took place in 1824. Why is that a big deal? Well, not only is he off by four years, but the revival he's describing took place after Joseph Smith claimed he was visited by the angel Moroni, who told him about the gold plates. That supposedly happened in 1823. 
So if it really, if the revival he's talking about took place in 1824, and that's what compelled him to go out and pray as to which church is true, and that's when God the Father and Jesus told him that all the churches were wrong, that's not the first vision. Moroni would be the first vision. Hmm. The church has to know this. I, I, they have to know this. And this is one area where I have no problem saying the church continues to lie to its people about the first vision. There's no way that revival he describes took place in 1820. Yeah, That is a huge problem in Joseph Smith's account. And I think that's also a really uh, leads to a good question. Um, uh, man, there's so many questions in my mind, uh, but this just came in here really quick on the golden plates. Uh, David Darlin says, um, uh, Joseph Smith didn't give the exact specs of the plates and the composition. No, so the fact the is we don't know. In the history of the church, he gives the exact specs. Okay. He does. Okay, so yeah. the, so we have the exact specs is what you're yes. saying, uh, and then also that it said it's made of gold. So if you take those specs, know the weight of gold that you should be able to estimate at about 200 pounds. Yeah. Now Mormons have tried to get around that by saying, well, Joseph Smith said that they were they were gold in appearance, that they only had a gold coloring. Um, I, I don't understand the thinking of this because you would think gold has the appearance of gold, right? But yet they go with this golden color. Uh, argument, which I think is bogus. It, when a Mormon says that, I just reel him back in and say, wait a minute, what did the angel Moroni say? He's the one that's showing them to Joseph Smith, or at least showing them where they're buried. Moroni himself, who was the one who allegedly buried them in the first place, said that they were plates of gold. If anybody should know what the plates were made of, you would think it would be Moroni. He was the last to write on them, according to the Book of Mormon story. So let's go by what Moroni said. I don't think Joseph Smith is wrong. I just think he's given a description that would only complement what Moroni was saying. But you see, the very fact that they have to make an excuse, knowing that the plates were supposedly of gold, they know the plates are too heavy to lift. <laughs> so they're agreeing with me in this area. I, I am saying the plates were too heavy to lift if they were really made of gold and they were that size. Yeah. So I, I just try to get them to start working through their arguments. Start, start thinking logically here. Look at what's being said. Add it all up. See, that's what I did. I was going by what the alleged eyewitnesses were saying. And remember, nobody weighed the plates. There's all sorts of estimates out there as to what people may have thought the plates weighed, but nobody weighed them. And it's hard to know what something weighs unless you have something to go by. I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of this. When I have Mormons lift my plates, I'll ask them, how much weight do you think you lifted? It's amazing. Most of them will go with a lower weight, like maybe 30 50, some will say 60 pounds. Now, I don't know if they're saying 60 because that seems to be the one weight that's often thrown around, which is arbitrary to begin with, but they'll all usually go lower, which I always found fascinating because mine are 80 pounds. Obviously, they don't know what 80 pounds really weighs in a space like that of sheet metal. Now, I've had Mormons say, well, yeah, but there was spaces in between the plates. And that's a common argument that Mormon apologists will make, that the plates had a, an air gap in between the plates. That only causes another problem for Latter-day Saints, because if you're going to put a 50% air gap, and that's a common gap that many Mormon apologists like to bring up, 
Now you've got two inches of plates at the top that Joseph Smith claimed he translated. Now the two inches of plates only becomes one inch of plates. Hmm. And I'm supposed to believe that Joseph Smith translated a book that in the, the size of the Book of Mormon was a little bit smaller than the size of the plates that Joseph Smith gives us. But the original Book of Mormon was over 580 pages off of engraved characters on metal? No way. Now you just made it even more unbelievable. Hmm. Okay. No, that's good. Appreciate it. Um, all right. So we have about, uh, well, about 12 or so minutes left. And so we'll kind of do some speed rounds here really quick. So kind of going back to the Book of Mormon, as you mentioned, uh, it is the story of uh, the people groups, the, the Lamanites and the Nephites who are living in the Americas and Jesus coming to visit uh, the, the um, you know, translated from the golden plates that are said to have been uh, translated from reformed Egyptian. So uh, I guess the question I have is, you know, I was at the uh, the Mormon Museum and as well as the, um, uh, the the conference center going on their tours. And I mentioned something to my guide at the conference center about, you know, what is reformed Egyptian? And he wasn't quite sure. Uh, but then I was at the museum and I shared the story before, but uh, I went through the whole museum and I noticed that all the artifacts started with the life of Joseph Smith. And so I went up to the information counter afterwards and I asked the uh, the people working at the information counter, I said, hey, I noticed uh, all your wonderful artifacts here are start with the life of Joseph Smith. Do you have any artifacts from kind of the Book of Mormon with the Lamanites and the Nephites? And he responded, that's a great question. I don't know. And the lady next to him said, what was his question? And he said, he's wondering where we have uh, artifacts from the Lamanites and Nephites. And she goes, well, we don't have any here. And I said, okay, well, then where are they? And she said, well, we actually don't have any anywhere. Um, and so uh, so really kind of, could you share briefly here about, you know, the, this story that has claimed to happen in America with the Lamanites and the Nephites? Um, how, what are some kind of issues, I guess? Uh, what would be some reasons where you say this story is problematic? It's problematic because, as I said earlier, the Book of Mormon claims to be a book of real people, real places, and real events. Well, if that's the case, if we have an idea of where the Book of Mormon people lived, why can't we do what biblical archaeologists do, and that is start snooping around, finding clues for, or for, inform, or for information that would prove the story, or at least uh, corroborate the story. The Mormons don't even know where to look. You have BYU professors, many of them believe that Central America is where the Book of Mormon people lived. But then you have another group within the LDS Church called the Heartland Model Group. This is guy, uh, includes guys like Glenn Beck, uh, Jeffrey Meldrum is a big proponent of this. They believe that the Book of Mormon lands were more in the area of the United States. So they can't even agree on that. If they don't know where to dig, how are they ever going to find anything? But you're right. If you were to go to the museum downtown and you were to ask the people that are volunteering there, show me where your Nephite artifacts are that would tend to verify that these people really existed. They have no Nephite artifacts. There are none. Now, when it comes to Lamanites, you have to understand Lamanites are supposed to be the ancestors of the American Indian. And sometimes they still refer to the American Indians as the Lamanite people. So they would have some Native American artwork and things like that. I've seen that there, and they could point to that. But that's not really proof for the Book of Mormon. That's just an assumption they make as to where the American uh, Indians came from. Yeah. But there's no real evidence of this, that they were Book of Mormon people, as described in the book. But... You're absolutely correct. The Mormon church is, is hard-pressed to come up with 
really any archaeological facts to show the Book of Mormon to be true, unlike the Bible, which has a ton of evidence, tons and tons of evidence. If you ever go to Israel, I would, I would encourage you to go to the Israel Museum just to see what they have on display yeah. uh, that verify the people groups in the book, in the Bible, and places in the Bible, individuals in the Bible. There's lots of evidence to show that our Bible is really talking about real people, real places, and real events. Yeah, you know, and even on one of my Maven trips, uh, some of the adult leaders when we were at BYU ended up sitting down at a table and finding out the people they were talking to were professors of archaeology at BYU, and they asked this question of, "Okay, you are a professor of archaeology. This is your area." how do you respond to the kind of comments that there's no archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon? And they said, well, we just separate it. This is my religious belief. This is my academic study. These are just kind of different worlds. And even even they were, were not giving archaeological evidence. And they admitted, we don't have any. And I just take it on faith. Uh, and that was, you know, professors yeah. at BYU. Yeah, see, I, I hear things like that. And I ask myself, could I as a Christian live with that? I don't think I can. See, if the Bible doesn't at least have some empirical evidence, I don't think I can move on to the next step and have faith in what it's telling me spiritually. I know I can't prove the spiritual message of the Bible. I can't prove empirically my sins are forgiven. I can only go by the promises of those in the Bible, Jesus, that I trust, okay? Uh, But there's plenty of evidence to show that the Bible is at least trustworthy in these other areas. And yeah. if it's trustworthy in those areas, why wouldn't it be trustworthy in the spiritual area? Yeah. It's an act of faith. I admit that. Yeah. But I've told many Latter-day Saints, the, the problem I have with the Book of Mormon is I could get over that hump with the Bible. I can't get over the first hump with the Book of Mormon. I, you wanting me to pray Moroni's prayer, asking God if these things are true, but you can't even demonstrate to me that there could have been a person such as Moroni in the first place who gives you that prayer. There's no evidence for Nephites. Yeah. So it becomes problematic. You're right. Yeah. So one more kind of pushback against hear what you're saying from David. He wrote in the live chat. He said, uh, check out the history of the mound builders, the Mimak. Uh, so what is this uh, idea? Yeah. Okay. That's a Jeffrey Meldrum argument. Okay. That's not what BYU uses. The okay. BYU professors don't use the mound builders as proof for the Book of Mormon. I, I was there and I saw an argument at a Sunstone conference between people of two different views. And it was fun watching them go back and forth. I thought I was watching like a Calvin Arminian debate, you know, it was <laughs> kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah, a lot of, Professors don't go by that. And there's been articles written on that. We know who the mound builders were. They are not Book of Mormon people. Now, Jeffrey Meldrum might want to believe that, but the evidence really doesn't support that That's that these are really people mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Um, it's unfortunate, but that's okay. that's just the way it is. Yeah, good. All right, so w- w- how I really want to start this whole thing, and man, this has been an awesome conversation, is, you know, I, I share the story too. I was on an airplane once, found out I was sitting next to a Mormon, and he asked me what I do. I said, I teach world religions, and I'm a Christian. And, and he goes, okay, why don't Christians think Mormons are Christian? And so I found that as you talk to some Mormons, like some will say, we are Christians. A friend of mine just had a conversation with the next door neighbor where they said, hey, yeah, we're Christians just like you. Others will say, no, uh, we're not Christian. And then others will say, well, why don't you think I'm a Christian? Because clearly I am. So uh, how would you kind of help us understand this idea of some Mormons saying they are Christians and others saying they are not? 
Well, what I do is I ask them, well, what do you think a Christian is? How would you define a Christian? They might give me a, a few of their ideas like, well, you got to believe in Jesus. Well, that's fine, but the Bible tells us that even the devils believe that. So that's not really a saving uh, element there in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So I'll kind of help them with it. I say, would you agree with me that there's one thing that all Christians share, and that is the forgiveness of their sins? Would you agree that all true Christians are forgiven of their sins? This becomes a little hard for a Mormon. Now, they might answer and say, well, yeah, I, I, I guess so. Okay. Do you know for a fact, if you were to die right now, that all your sins are forgiven and you would get the best your religion offers you? And then wait, because I find very few Mormons have the assurance that all their sins are forgiven, because the only way they can be forgiven in Mormonism is if they repent of their sins all of their sins and repentance in Mormonism is not just a confession of the sin, it's an abandonment of the sin, never to repeat the sin again. And in section one, verse 32, the Doctrine and Covenants, you have to repent of your sins, you have to keep the commandments, and you ask the Latter-day Saint, how many commandments must you keep? They'll tell you all of them. If you repent of all your sins, never to repeat them again, you keep all the commandments, According to that passage in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants, then you get the forgiveness. What Latter-day Saint has met those first two requirements? I have never met one. I've never met one. And I've been doing this for over 40 years. Now, I've had Mormons tell me they are. I had, I had an interesting, more than once I've had this happen, where I've had a husband, let's say, on the streets of Manti, tell me how he's keeping all the commandments. And he's standing there with his wife. And I'll look at her and say, is he telling the truth? He keeps all the commandments? You'll see the spouse just rolling her eyes like, no. So obviously you're not doing that. Have you ever repented of any sins? You'll have a Mormon say, well, yeah, I repent all the time. Ah, so that means you're not keeping all of the commandments because the only reason you would have a need to repent is if you violated a commandment. So really, in order to make sure that you qualify to get the best Mormonism has for you and to get the forgiveness of your sins, you need to quit repenting. Because every time you repent, you prove you're not doing what you're supposed to do. I know it's a catch-22, but that's the way Mormonism tells the story. And so uh, I would say that unless they're forgiven, they don't have a right to say they're a Christian. Now, is it possible that they are changing, I guess, the definition of Christian? Uh, and the reason I ask this is because, you know, it seems to me as I read the story that Joseph Smith, why, yes, why did he start Mormonism? Well, he was told in the vision that all the denominations of Christianity were an abomination, and he is mm -hmm. now presenting the true gospel. So it seems weird for a Mormon to say, well, I'm a Christian too. It's like, but if you're a Christian like me, well, Joseph Smith said that my denomination is an abomination, at least in my understanding, and I could be wrong here. And so maybe it's like, have they changed what they mean by Christian? And then they would consider me not a Christian. Or would they say yeah. when they say I'm a Christian, are they yeah. saying they're a Christian just like I am? Or have they now have they're the true Christians and I'm not? Well, let me answer it in, in a couple of ways. First of all, in the first vision, Smith claimed he was told that all the churches were wrong. Their creeds were an abomination. And all the professors of those churches were corrupt. That's how they were described. So if they're claiming that they're a Christian just like me, I've sometimes asked them, well, what kind of a Christian do you think I am? 
how are you defining that? How do you know you're a Christian like me? Do you, do you believe this? Do you believe that? Do you believe this? Do you believe that? I can run off a string of things that I believe as a Christian that I know they don't believe, and they'll tell me they don't believe that. So then you really aren't a Christian like me. We don't really believe the same things. We certainly don't do the same things. I'm not baptized for my dead. Uh, you know, I, I don't take the sacrament thinking that this is what cleanses me of my sins temporarily till the next time I take it. I mean, there's a lot of things that we don't agree on. But usually, and I've done this before, when a Mormon says he's a Christian like me, I say, well, I guess that makes me a Mormon just like you. And they'll go, well, well no, no, that's, that's not true. I go, well, why not? And then they'll tell me the differences. Well, you don't believe Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, or you don't believe that there's three gods within one Godhead, or blah, blah, blah. In other words, now I'm letting them tell me the differences. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier that you have some Mormons who say they're not Christians. Usually when that comes up in a conversation that way, I think what the Latter-day Saint is doing is they're, they're making sure you don't assume that they are Christians like everybody mm -hmm. else. And there are some Mormons like that. But I don't normally take that as they don't think they're Christians at all. I'm, I take it more in the context that they don't think they're Christians like, let's say, evangelicals mm -hmm. or, you know, yeah. like us. Uh, but they do officially believe that their church is the only Christian church on the face of the earth. And if it's a Christian church and that's what they belong to, then obviously they would think they are Christians. Yeah. But they're not part of apostate Christendom. That would be all of us. Okay. According to their view. Yeah, I think that's, you know, good. I, I once had Mormon missionaries visiting me and, and they they brought a friend with them. And the friend was talking about how, um, how isn't it so amazing that we all have the same belief about God? And it was actually the Mormon missionary that stopped her and said, no, we don't believe the same thing about God. Oh, good for him. They have a different view of God than we do. And, and I went, thank you, because that was what I was trying to say of where, why I can't be a Mormon. And so, again, it's this idea of, like, uh, if you want to say you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, okay, then we're talking about two different things because the Mormon view of God is very different uh, than the Christian view of God, which is one thing that we didn't have time to get into um, here. Now, uh, we did just hit the one-hour time mark. Um, is it okay if we go through a few... Um, a few more uh, uh, questions that came in on the live chat or sure. we have time for that? Okay. So one text message ca question came in that I think relates to that is, uh, would Mormons say that they are the only one saved or uh, would, uh, would we be saved too? Well, when they use the word saved, that has to be defined because true salvation in Mormonism is known as celestial exaltation, getting into the top level of Mormon heaven known as the celestial kingdom. This is where only Mormons who repent of all their sins and keep all the commandments end up, which, as I said earlier, I've never met a Mormon who's met that qualification. So if that's really what is required, it's probably going to be a very empty place, that's for sure. But only Mormons can get to that top level. So they would say that we're saved. Probably in their mind, they're thinking, yes, everybody is saved by grace, because saved by grace, according to Mormonism, is to be resurrected from the dead. Well, even atheists are resurrected from the dead, according to Mormonism. So what does that really mean? Well, it doesn't mean you're going to end up in the celestial kingdom. You'll probably end up in either the terrestrial or the telestial kingdom, which are two lower levels. Now, no Mormon that I know of 
is really striving or wants to go those two lower levels. The goal of every faithful Latter-day Saint that I've talked to is to get to that top level because that's where they become a god. That's where they will inherit their own world, just as Elohim inherited this world. And that is where they will have the opportunity to be with their family forever and ever and to be able to procreate with their wife that they were married to for time and eternity throughout eternity. They'll be able to procreate with that wife and populate the world that they've been given for their faithfulness. Awesome. Um, so uh, next question came in and it said, uh, do you think that Joseph Smith uh, was actually visited by someone or something? Um, uh, or, you know, kind of where is he getting this information? I mean, it's it's hard to it's it's all speculation um, because, yeah. you know, this person put in uh, because we know that even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So is it Satan masquerading as an angel? Is it truly an angel? Is Joseph Smith making everything up? Is there anything in the literature that kind of points to something? Uh it could be a little bit of all of the above, but I don't know. I wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's such a complex religion that you might say it sounds like it almost have, has to have some kind of demonic influence in it. Uh, but I don't know. Um, I think Joseph Smith could have very well invented the story for the Book of Mormon. It's not really all that original anyway. People coming over from another part of the world and starting a whole civilization, that's not nothing new. There were books around at the time of Joseph Smith that taught something very similar. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't really have an answer to that question. The fact is, is when I look at what Joseph Smith taught, what he said, what he taught, I have to conclude that he is not a true prophet that represents the God of the Bible. And his description of God proves that. And that is one of the tests of a true prophet. They have to teach a true concept of God. And yet Smith does not do that. So he would be disqualified according to Deuteronomy 13. Okay. Um, all right, next question here is, uh, why do LDS use the Bible if they don't believe what it says in many parts? Well, they do believe portions of it that they think supports their unique views. So they would argue that they do believe it, although with qualification. I think sometimes that Mormons will use the Bible to maybe convince Christians that they're just like them and that they use the Bible. But yet when you ask Mormons, do you, well, what do you believe about this verse? Well, they certainly don't view it the way the author intended it. They have to read into it, what we call the classic case of eisegesis, in order to make it uh, uh, go along with what they believe already. Uh, so, yeah, they do use it. But then a lot of cults use the Bible. Uh, doesn't mean that they believe everything in it is the Word of God. It, it doesn't mean that they see those verses to say exactly what the apostle meant when he wrote it or what Jesus meant when he said it because they spin a lot of this stuff and, and they read into the passages things that the authors never intended. Yeah, wonderful. All right, so to finish us up then in this kind of this uh, wonderful conversation, uh, there's there's a lot of information here, right? We've been going for an hour and six minutes talking about a lot of contradictions and a lot of things. Uh, how can we kind of summarize this? So, you know, should we learn as Christians as much of the details and contradictions as mo in Mormonism as possible? Or kind of are there some big picture ideas that can help us put a pebble in someone's shoe uh, to help them think kind of deeper? So what it might be kind of some big picture things that from here on Christians can then go into to start studying to help them be better in having conversation with their Mormon friends? 
Well, we have a lot of material at our website at MRM.org. That's for sure. There's plenty of stuff there. Uh, but if there's an area that I like to zero in on, I like to eventually steer the conversation toward where that Latter-day Saint is in light of eternity. Mm -hmm. That is one thing they should know. Where are you going when you die? I, I have people ask me all the time, why did you move to Utah? Well, because there's so many people here that don't know where they're going when they die. Because <laughs> they don't. They know they're going to one of three places, but they certainly don't have the assurance that they're going to end up in the celestial kingdom because the requirements are very high. And whether they're going to reach that high requirement by the time they die, they don't know. If they haven't reached it so at this point in their life, what makes them think they're going to reach it at the end of their life? They don't even know how long their life is going to be. So there's so if you don't know where you're going when you die, if you don't know if your sins are forgiven, what kind of faith is that? I mean, isn't saving faith really trusting in Christ alone that his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary is what paid for our redemption and merely our trust in what he did for us justifies us. Our faith justifies us by what Jesus did and his righteousness is then imputed to us or given to us as believers. That's saving faith. Now, I'm not saying that a Christian can't understand all that and may have some questions, but the difference is Mormonism prevents the Latter-day Saint from knowing that. Christianity doesn't do that. And there's the big difference right there. I was responding to a quick comment um, here uh, in, I was responding in the live chat, and I think maybe it'd be something good to say is, um, and, and the comment came in is that there's a lot more in common than different. Um, and my response is, well, even though that may be true, there are differences that are detrimental, right? So again, if you have uh, two different people and they're both teachers and they're both male and they're both have green eyes and they both have that, you, you could have the same person, but the moment you say one is six foot five and one is five foot 10, you now have two different people. So it only takes one fundamental difference that, it, that is contradictory to say we're, we're different. So how would you kind of respond here to this last okay. kind of point of, well, there's a lot in common. I would say the, the fact that they, that they believe we have a lot in common is really irrelevant because the things we don't have in common are important things. Yeah. yeah. Who we believe regarding God, what we believe regarding how mankind is saved, what we believe regarding what entails scripture. Those are three areas alone that are huge. And if we disagree on those, it doesn't matter that we may share some social issues or we may share some, some names or even share some descriptions of concepts. That's irrelevant because the differences are not minor. They're huge. Remember, according to Mormonism, the official account as it is now in the 1838 account of the first vision, Joseph Smith claimed that all the churches were wrong all our creeds are an abomination. Abomination. That means the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed. That's an abomination. And that all our professors are corrupt. In light of that, what could you possibly say that we have in common that outweighs just those three areas? Yeah. 
That's so big. Awesome. Well, Bill, thank you so much for taking this time, helping us better understand uh, what Mormonism teaches and believes, as well as the differences between Mormonism and, and Christianity. Uh, again, as you kind of mentioned there a little bit ago, I have your website, uh, mrm.org, listed below. I have your books listed below as well that have been a huge uh, help to me as they're broken down very well into certain questions. So if questions are being asked, uh, you can go specifically to that section. Uh, any kind of last uh, thoughts and words as you uh, as we finish up our time together on where people can learn more about you and uh, kind of an encouragement to those who are uh, doing evangelism with Mormons? Well, I, I would strongly encourage them to check out our website, uh, listen to our, our radio show. It's on podcast. They can listen to it anytime they want. Uh, but I think there's going to be a lot of information there that will help them also. And uh, one last thing is, let's not look as the more, at the Mormon people as our enemies. Mm -hmm. They're not our enemies. They are many times very good people that just happen to have been deceived by a bad guy, Joseph Smith and, and his, uh, those that have succeeded him. Uh, I think we need to look at the Mormon people with compassion, that they are merely lost as we were lost before we were found. And we need to look at them that way. I think if you look at a Latter-day Saint in that kind of, through that kind of lens, it might change the way you think. And it may also help you in how you present yourself yeah. when you're talking to the Latter-day Saint. Absolutely. Yeah, we are called to love people, and that should give us a heart to have these conversations uh, with Absolutely. them. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking this time. My pleasure, Ryan. My pleasure. All right, for those of you who just watched, thank you so much for participating in this conversation. I hope that you learned and grew through it. Again, as always, you can check out a social media to know what's coming up. Tomorrow is gonna to be an interview with Megan Alman from the Life Training Institute on the topic of abortion, pro-life or pro-choice, looking at arguments and objections for each of those. Again, as always, if you're watching this in a little bit, the videos will pop up here in the corners of other interviews that I'm doing, as well as other videos that are available to watch. And uh, please, if you enjoyed this, share it with a friend, like it, subscribe. And if you want to support financially, you can do so at the link below Patreon. So thank you so much. I will see you guys tomorrow for another live stream this week. Have a blessed day.